Thank you so much for that prayer this morning, John. Appreciate it. Well, we are continuing in the gospel, excuse me, in the book of Titus this morning, and we are looking at Titus chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. The New Testament book of Titus, which I am preaching through, and we are looking at chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. Now, let me say just a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 actually form one unit, but it is much too long for me to cover in one message. So this is part 1. So this is really verses 1 through 10, part 1, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to look at part 2 in two weeks on May 21st. And the reason we aren't going to do part Two and for two weeks is because next week, next Sunday, is Mother's Day. So next Sunday morning, I will be going to a different part of the Bible, and our focus will be on honoring, challenging, encouraging our mothers uh, next Sunday morning. So, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, as we prepare ourselves for the self-examination of communion uh, thought and correctly understood, it will always result in righteous living. So, if I am being taught Scripture correctly and I understand Scripture correctly, it will always result in a righteous life. That's One just flows from the other. I will produce or I will bear fruit as Jesus commands in John chapter 15. I will bear the fruit of the Spirit. So if I am not bearing fruit as a self-proclaimed Christian, if I am not living out the fruit of the Spirit, then I have either not been taught correctly or I have not understood correctly. In verse 1, Paul says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus, teach sound doctrine. So what is sound doctrine? Sound doctrine, and there are a number of ways that we could define this, sound doctrine very simply is teaching the truths of, of Scripture, especially as they relate to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. That is sound doctrine. It is teaching faithfully, systematically, the truths of all Scripture especially as they relate to the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. So Titus, teach sound doctrine. Now I want to tell you something that at least I think is extremely important this morning. Last week, we looked at the last part of chapter 1, where Paul tells Titus that He is to deal with the false teachers and false teaching. That was our subject last week. He tells Titus these false teachers must be silenced and therefore rebuke them sharply. 
Now he is telling Titus, teach people to lead righteous lives. And the great connector between those two subjects is verse 1. Teach what, it, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I know mo- many of you know this, but maybe all of you don't. When the Bible was written in the original manuscripts, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse markings. Those came later in history. Those were put in by men. And I'm very thankful for chapter divisions and verse markings. However, sometimes we have to be careful that we don't think, oh, chapter 2, new subject, or chapter 3, different subject. No, this originally just flowed all together. And I say that because what Paul is saying, the way you protect yourself from false teaching and the way that or what God uses to cause you to live a righteous life are the, is the teaching of sound doctrine. So sound doctrine protects us from false teaching and implores us to live righteous lives. So verse 1 connects everything in chapter 1 with everything in chapter 2. If you remember last week, and it's how I ended the message last week, Titus was to refute the false teachers. And we said one of the ways in which a church refutes false teaching is by righteous living, by good living. And I want to repeat the verse that I shared with you at the end of last week. 1 Peter 2.15, I think is just a very important verse. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's exactly what Paul is saying here, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So do good. That's chapter 2, do good. The way you live is the evidence that what you preach and teach is what you live. This is the evidence that Christians actually live out what they preach and teach. And I'm going to touch on this at the end of the message But when we don't live what we preach and teach, we discredit the word of God. We discredit the very truth of the word of God. Now, Paul is going to address two different groups of people, actually three. So in the two parts, today and then in two weeks from today, he's going to address older men, Older women, younger women today, and then in two weeks, younger men and employees. Employees, slaves at that time, employees. So it is addressing the different groups found within any body of believers. Now he addresses older men and older women. What are older men and older women? This is general in scripture. Different commentaries give different thoughts on exactly what may be meant here. But generally speaking, an older man or an older woman was someone approximately in their 50s and 60s and older. Now, Paul, in one place, refers to himself as an older man and was probably in his 60s. 
In ancient Greek literature, a man was considered to be older when he entered his 50s. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, widows could not be added to the list of those who could receive financial help from the church until they were at least in their 60s. So this is general, but it's generally referring to those in a congregation who are older. If they've had children, their children are now grown. Their children may have had children. They have grandchildren, possibly. Every situation or each person is different, but that's generally what Paul is talking about here. So let's start with the older men. Older men in a church are to be important examples to the entire congregation of what a righteous life looks like. I just really want to impress that upon all of us who are older men and older women. You are so important in your example to this congregation, to all the younger men, all the younger women, and all the children. And so... Paul says, older men are to be sober-minded. And let me say this. I want to say this. Just because you're an older man and just because you're an older woman doesn't mean you're living a righteous life. You have to be taught, exhorted, and reminded constantly. So it it just doesn't come automatically by age, but this is who he's referring to. And so he says, older men are to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded here means that you have a much different perspective on life than you did when you were 20 and when you were 25. It means that you have seen people. You have seen people fall away from the faith. People that you never thought would fall away from the faith. You have seen people live. You have seen people die. You have seen people go through suffering. You have noticed in your own life that you're getting older. And you're sober-minded. You realize the brevity of life. You realize how passing this world is. And that stains everything you do. It's part of who you are and everything that you do. Also, older men are to be dignified. Dignified is an interesting word here. It means that you're serious about serious things and you don't laugh at what's serious. That's what it means to be dignified. So you don't laugh at dirty jokes. You don't laugh at things that are sinful. When you see someone whose lifestyle is wrong... You don't mock them. You don't laugh at them. Your heart breaks for them. You want to see them come to Christ. You want to see them transformed because you're dignified. Self-control. This is much like we learned about with the qualifications of an elder and it is also a qualification of an older woman or a teaching for an older woman. Self-control is very important and it very simply means this. It means what it says. It means when everyone around you is getting really emotional. When everyone around you is kind of losing it. You remain calm. You are the calm one. You are the better person in that heated argument or in that heated situation. Older men are to be sound in faith. Men, 
you are to communicate to others that you believe the word of God. You believe all of it. You've lived long enough where you know that you can say to others, I believe in the authority of the word of God. I can tell you that God is faithful no matter what you see around you. God is holy and God is faithful. You are sound in the essential teachings of Scripture, in the essential teachings of the biblical faith. You are sound in love. And I like this one. An older man of God is to be a man of love. He loves his wife. Loves his children. God has blessed him with grandchildren. He loves his grandchildren. And you know what else he does? He loves those who disagree with him. And he loves those who are lost. He loves the lost. He prays for them. He wants to show love to them for the sake of the gospel. And he's sound in steadfastness. He has proven over a long period of time that through the good times and the hard times, through the times of joy and the times of suffering, through the times of good and the times of evil, he remains steadfast to the Lord. He remains steadfast to his wife. He remains steadfast to his church. He remains steadfast to his family. He is a godly, older man. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And that's the thought of an older man. He doesn't even want any kind of sin named among him. Doesn't mean he's perfect. Doesn't mean he's without sin. But it does mean that he is really striving to live a good and righteous life. Men, what a challenge to us. To those of us who are older now, what a challenge to be this kind of example to the people in our congregation. Well, our second point this morning is the power of godly examples. Older women in a congregation are not only to be important examples, but they are also to train the younger women. Older women have a twofold responsibility to live a righteous life and to be training younger women in the ways of Christ. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. That means they show a seriousness about their faith in God, their salvation in Christ. Did some interesting reading this week about, especially when this was written in the first century, the important role that women, especially older women, would play in their communities. Often at this time in history, poor women would not be able to care for their newborn babies, so they'd just abandon them. And these godly older women, they would go into their communities and they would care for the poor. They would care for the needy. They would care for the hungry. And they would minister to these women. And if these babies were abandoned, they would rescue them. And I thought that was so interesting what these women would do. Their ministry was... Because, and let me back up and say, these abandoned babies normally would either die 
They would be sold into slavery or they would be sold to become prostitutes. And so these older women would go out and they would rescue them. They would rescue them and they would take them to churches and ask if there were any families that would be willing to adopt them and raise them for Christ. So they were to be reverent, take their faith seriously. They were not to be slanderers. And this doesn't mean not gossips. It does mean that. But they are never to slander or say mean things about other people. There was a saying at this time that men would fight their fights with their fists and women would fight their fights with their tongues. Now, I think this is good advice to both men and women. But the thought is, when people, when gossip is spreading, when criticism is spreading, and we know how that goes, don't participate. You just choose not to participate. You don't get involved. It stops with you. They're not to be slaves to much wine. They're not to be controlled by alcohol. Sometimes we get into this debate, how strong was the wine back in the first century? Well, let me tell you, for the most part, wine is wine. And alcohol was a problem back then, just as it is now. It was. As men and women would get older, they didn't have modern medical technology, and they would often have many aches and pains. They would often get very lonely, and they would turn to alcohol. And Paul says you must teach them never to be controlled, never to be slaves to alcohol. They are to teach what is good. This goes right back to verse 1. They, for their part, were to help the elders in teaching sound doctrine. They were to teach scripture. They were to teach what is good. And in doing so, they would train the young women to love their husbands and children. And what this means is, it doesn't not really talking about sexual love here for their husband. What it means is this, and, and just studying it out this week, I found it so interesting. It means that the older women would help the younger women to love their husband and their children. You choose before God, because of the commands of God, to love your husband and to love your children. Don't wish you had a different husband. Don't just look at your husband's sins and weaknesses. Don't wish you had someone else's children. Don't wish your children were like someone else's children. Don't think your children aren't as good as that family's children. No, you, you are to love your husband. And you are to love your children. With all of their sins and weaknesses, you are called to love them. Tell the young women to be self-controlled. Same thing as for older men, older women, and younger women. When things are emotional, when there's heated discussions, you are the person who remains calm. You are the person who brings the scriptural, godly perspective into the conversation. You are to teach the younger women to be pure. This is a direct reference to sexual purity. You are to be pure before marriage and you are to be pure in marriage. You are to be workers at home. This is an often misunderstood phrase taken to lengths that it isn't meant to be. 
Workers at home does not mean that a woman can never work outside the home or that a woman can't be involved in like a home business or teach a class if she's gifted in, in like maybe teaching at a local school or community college or um, teaching in some venue. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is this. Working at home means that every woman who has a husband and children is to see them as their greatest priority, their number one priority, no matter what else you may do, what other ministries you may get involved in, you are to see your home, your love for your husband and your love for your children as your number one priority. You are not to despise being a wife and a mother. You are not to ever, ever think that being a wife and a mother is unimportant. It is the most important responsibility that God has given to you. So whether you do have ministry or work responsibilities outside the home, home must always be number one. You are to teach younger women to be kind. You are to teach them to be kind and gentle and gracious in all of their dealings. You are to teach them to be submissive to their own husbands. And I know in a modern culture, sometimes that takes on a lot of negative connotations, but it's not. It's a beautiful thing. You are to teach the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. Now, I always, when I teach on something like this, and I have many times in the past, I'm always very sensitive. Some of you women out here have very godly, God-fearing husbands. And it's fairly easy for you to submit to them. Some of you, your husbands may be weak in the faith, or you may have an unbelieving husband. But this applies to all of you. This applies to all of you. As much as you possibly can, you are to allow your husband to lead. You are to respect him. And especially in spiritual matters, you are to let him be the spiritual leader of your home. So in any and every area that you possibly can, you are to show respect and honor to your husband and let him lead where he can lead. And then at the very end, it says this, and I think it's a great summation of the whole passage, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's it. And we're going to see this again in part two in two weeks. That the word of God may not be reviled. When you don't live out what you preach and teach, it brings discredit to the word of God. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Almost all of us know about David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba. Then the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him with his sin. And when he rebukes David, he says this to him. Nathan says, David, you have dishonored the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight. You have dishonored the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight. That's exactly what is being said here. That the word of God may not be reviled. So, let me bring this to a conclusion before we take the Lord's Supper. Let us remind ourselves daily that the righteous life that Scripture commands us to live can only be lived out through the power of Christ in us. I want you to think about this. The righteous life that God requires can only be lived out 
through the power of Christ in us. That's an essential part of the gospel. See, this example is critical. I believe this is a whole other sermon for another day. You know what our nation really needs right now? We need older men, older women, teaching younger women to do the very things right here. We need godly, God-fearing, gentle, kind examples in this culture that we live in. A parallel passage would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Oh, that's it. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Be blameless and innocent, without blemish, right in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Because you shine. You shine as lights in the world. But let us remember. Let us always keep in mind. And this is the gospel. All these things Paul says here, I can't do them. Not in my own strength. Not in my own flesh. But I can through Christ. Through the resurrected and living Christ. Living in me by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who has sealed me until the day of redemption. Through the resurrected and living Christ living in me, I can live this way. So I am constantly, constantly repenting and surrendering to the power of Christ in me. That leads us into communion. He died. He rose again. Not only that we might be saved, but that we might have the power to live righteous lives before him. If you're new with us, one deacon will pray for the bread and the cup this morning. The deacons will hand out the bread and cup together. And when everyone has been served, I will read a passage of scripture. We'll eat together. Then I'll read another passage of scripture and we'll drink together. For those of you who are watching by live stream while we're serving communion, we encourage you to use this as an important time of meditation and reflection. And I do want to add that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not sure you do, we would ask you to let the elements pass you by. If you do know Christ as your Savior, and maybe there's some issue in your life, it's just not right. I'm not talking about just daily sins, but there's something not right. There's a relationship that isn't right. There's some sin in your life that you really need to deal with. Maybe it's best that you let the elements pass you by. There's nothing wrong with that if it's done with the right motive and attitude. So at this time, this time we will share the Lord's Supper together.